Tim. Thank you, praise team. If you have your copy of God's Word, with, turn with me, if you would, this morning to uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, and uh, we continue our study in 2 Corinthians together, and we're going to be in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 here this morning, and really as you're turning there, and as we think about uh, really even the songs that we sing, and what the supper that we celebrate, and even just coming to grips with reality, we need confidence we like confidence to a certain degree. We like confidence in all manner of different things and the ways in which we live our lives. We want to have confidence in the things that are around us. And yet oftentimes as believers, as those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, oftentimes we find ourselves feeling as though we may lack confidence. We need to be reminded upon the ground upon which we stand. We, needed to be, we need to be reminded of the truth which we confess. We need to see the hand of God in designing and putting things together in the way that He has to display that our confidence ultimately is not in the fact that we are sufficient because we know we are not. It's not in the fact that we've got it all figured out because we know that we don't. It's not in the fact that we are mighty because we know that we aren't. It's in the fact that our God is sufficient, and we trust in Him. Grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you will, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. Read with me, if you will, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tab tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit and for your glory, Teach us. Teach us to rest secure in the cross of Christ and in the resurrection. Teach us to have the sense of our own self-sufficiency unraveled that we may humbly and joyfully rest our sufficiency and all of our trust in you. Father, we pray that you would do in us what needs to be done, that we would come before you humbly and yet with adoring hearts, trusting in Christ together, that we may together confess, behold our God, look at what he's done. Lead us, guide us, grow us, convict us in Jesus' mighty name and for his great glory. Amen. By the time we get to this point in 2 Corinthians, we've already had a great many, even descriptions, straightforward descriptions of the greatness of our own God. We've had him described as the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, about the God who raises the dead. We've talked about him as the God uh, through whom we have grace and out of whom we boast. We've seen how all of the promises of God find their yes and amen, so God 
displays his faithfulness in Christ. And we've seen that and celebrated that even to the degree of last week talking about the triumph that we walk in through Jesus Christ. And that everywhere we go, he is wafting the aroma of his triumph for all who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. When we look at him and behold our God in all of his manifest glory, May our own sense of self-sufficiency be unraveled that we may have great confidence in Him. Which is really where the text turns at this point. Because he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Are we starting over, as it were, with the Corinthian church? Is this really necessary to, to reset this whole relationship with the Apostle Paul and Timothy and the, the ministry that they had within the city of Corinth? And you can go back and you can read all of that in, in the book of Acts. Do we need this again? He says, even do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Do we need letters of recommendation to come back to you? Do we need letters of recommendation from you in order to go somewhere else to preach the gospel? Now, letters of recommendation were not an uncommon thing and not an unheard of thing even within the biblical text. There's reference of one in Acts chapter 18 as it relates to Apollos. There's another reference to one in Romans chapter 16. And as we would think of letters of recommendation, you can think of giving credence to those who are unknown. Maybe you've had to do this before. You get letters of recommendation because you were trying to get a scholarship for some sort of school and you needed somebody who knew you well to write down a letter of recommendation to send it on and be like, this is somebody who would deserve this scholarship. Maybe you've done this with a job. We do this with job recommendations, right? That you would write this letter of recommendation. It would give credence to somebody who's unknown. But for Paul and Timothy, it's like he's writing to them again saying, we're not unknown to you. Do we need this? That in all of the unpacking of the grandeur of the glory of who God is and what He has done, He's saying we're not commending ourselves again. That's not a necessary thing. We don't need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you. Because what was happening is the false teachers were running around like, a, like the good old boys club, that as long as you had your letter of recommendation, you could move the same bad characters from town to town to town and just have them teaching all sorts of crazy stuff. Unbiblical, ungodly, self-man-centered garbage. And we must be reminded here, as the Apostle Paul is leading us to see in the really a right understanding of the church and the church's own identity, our confidence must not be in our connections humanly speaking. It's interesting the way in which we do this even in personal interaction, right? We'll have, somebody will be telling a story about somebody and be like, oh yeah, I know them. And then it's like you find out later on in the conversation, it's like you don't really know them. It's like your third cousin's wife has somehow, you know, worked with a guy who knew them once. And it's like, that's not exactly the same thing. We try to exercise this sort of confidence in all manner of different ways. He's saying, we, this is not what we're doing here. Our confidence is not in our connections. As the gospel advances, as evangelism takes place, as discipleship is taking root, there are better reasons for confidence. And maybe we just need a reminder. He says in verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. 
So you're looking all over the place for letters of recommendation, and he says, it's you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you who trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you who know the God of all comfort, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead, the God who raises the dead has raised you to new life in Christ. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Your salvation recommends the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is who we are as the church. That if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, your life is a recommendation for the gospel. Now that might make you a little uncomfortable in the moment. But it is a reminder of what God is doing and how God has designed His church. Your faith, your walk with Him, your trusting in Him, your ever-increasing reliance upon the grace of Christ, your hope, looking forward to what is laid up for you in heaven that helps you shape the way you think of your moments right now. Your walk in holiness is a recommendation for the gospel. He's saying, Corinthian church, brothers and sisters in Christ, be confident in being a living recommendation of the gospel. Because that's not just true of the Corinthian church, that's true of us as well. We're a living recommendation of the gospel to our community. That you yourself, if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're a living recommendation of the gospel to those in your own home, to those on your street, to those with whom you work. But see, this this letter of recommendation is not locked up in a file cabinet somewhere. He says it's written on our hearts to be known and read by all. He says it's written on our hearts. This is a letter that we take with us wherever we go. And when he said, and when he uses the word written here, he's not just talking about sort of scribbled out on a piece of paper. He's using the word engraved or inscribed, the sense of permanence about it. The lasting, sufficient power of the gospel in your own life. And see, maybe you've had something similar to this experience before. When God used you in some way in the life of somebody else. Maybe, maybe you were sh- sh- sowing the seed of the gospel, sharing your faith with somebody, and then all of a sudden, much to your surprise, they received Christ as Savior and Lord. And what happens? That gets etched in your memory, doesn't it? That's not something you're going to lose. It's like embedded in there and you're ever reminded about it. Somebody that you discipled in the faith and you start to see all the ways in which the the fruit of the Spirit is at work in their lives and you're just amazed by it. And you look and you see it's like etched in your memory. It's a living recommendation. Jesus really does save. Jesus really does redeem. Jesus really does reconcile people to himself. And that as Paul is writing this, he's not writing this to a bunch of people that he doesn't know. He can see their faces. He could recall the time when the gospel first took root in so many of their lives, when they were just involved in all manner of pagan idolatry and God called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's like, I can remember your story and I can remember your story and you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. This isn't confidence in Paul. This is confidence in the Spirit of God at work through the Apostle Paul. That our confidence must be in him but we also ought to think that our lives are a letter of recommendation for someone and that letter is meant to be as he says it here known 
and read by all. Testimonies of grace where people were dead in their trespasses and sins. People whose lives seemed to have been absolutely thrown away. Who all of a sudden are overwhelmed with the reality that they are an object of God's love. And they understand and know that Jesus died on the cross for their sin and rose from the dead. And there's forgiveness and everlasting life in his name. And all of a sudden it's boom, there it is. And it's amazing. And the hope and the joy that's found there. We like personal letters. We like to read personal correspondence. I mean, if, even with loved ones or people in your own house, you know, you love to find the old letters in grandma's drawers so that you can go and read them. You learn so much about them. You learn so much of what they loved and cared for, and you're, we're so eager to read these things. The, our lives are personal letters meant to be known and read by all. Known by our families and known by our co-workers and known by our friends. Known for what it is that our lives recommend. See, these letters, this letter of recommendation is not simply to be read at your funeral. Not so that somebody can get up here and, and just sort of read the backlog of your story. Your story is being read all the time. By those who are around you. By those who will testify at your funeral of living hope and living life in Jesus Christ. In whom is our confidence? As we think of our lives being known and read by all. We have to admit there are methods of communication. Some are better than others. Maybe you've been to an art museum before and you've walked down and hallway of abstract art and as soon as you get down the you know you're three steps into it and you look on the wall and the first thought and maybe it's just me first thought in my mind is what is that what is that even supposed to say what does that communicate there are better ways of communication aren't there talking much better way of communication. But even better, having it written down in a thoughtful way that not only can you read it and understand, but you can take it with you and be reminded of it later. Our lives are meant to be read in that way of knowing Christ and the power of the gospel. That wherever you are and whomever you may be around, your life is meant to be a living recommendation of the gospel of Christ. And we are to be confident in the fact of that. Confident in who Christ is. Confident in what Christ is doing. Confident in what Christ has done. That none of this whatsoever leads to a place where we're like, oh, I'm real confident that I can do this on my own. Or I'm real confident that I can make this happen on my own. No, not in any way, shape, or form. Just as the Apostle Paul would testify time and time and time again, it is not me, it's the grace of God in me and through me. He says in verse 3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. He says, And you show, you display, you make clear 
that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Do you see how good our God is? See how many ways in which he points us to his sufficiency and points us to his love and points us to his grace. Not only has he given us his word, his written word that we would know and understand and treasure and we would have all of the, you know, the manifest wonder of knowing the glory of Christ by his word and for his glory where he teaches us and we grow. But at the same time, he gives us the body of Christ. And so that every time we're together, there's this announcement to the world around us. God saves and God cares and God sustains. And it's certain. How do we know? Because we can look down the pew and see people. We're not talking about abstract realities. We're talking about people who once were dead in their trespasses and sin and alive in Christ Jesus now. And we can look at one another and celebrate together that as you look around and you hear people singing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, you can rejoice because they're making the same recommendation that you are in that very same moment. What an amazing God we have that he would design his church in this way. A letter delivered by the Apostle Paul in Timothy. Delivered by us. But the word that he uses even here for delivered. Same word that's translated later on in verse 6 as ministered. Same word from which we get the whole idea of waiting tables. Of being brought to the table power of the gospel written by Christ you're a letter from Christ sources matter don't they depending on the source is going to depend is going to be the determining factor of our confidence isn't it it's how we are with the news it's how we are with anything it's how we are with a letter of recommendation for somebody who may want to have a job Sources matter. Who's the source of this written letter? It's a letter from Christ. He's the one who's writing this. He's the one who's writing the story of this church. He's the one in whom we must be confident that this is written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. I wonder how many times in our lives we have heard something important, found a scratch piece of paper somewhere, scribbled something down, like, oh, I need to remember that. And then what happens with that scratch piece of paper? Maybe you left it in the pew. Maybe you left it in your car. You know, six years later, when you finally get around to cleaning your car out or whatever else, you dig it out from under, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, I've been looking for that. I forgot I even had that, Right? This letter is not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. That we would look and say, look at what our God has done. As he convicts us of our sin, convicts us of our need for the righteousness of Christ, and converts us, gives us life, and grows us in holiness. Only he could do this. Only our sovereign Lord, who is Trinity, God the Father, God the Son who is the Christ, God the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God at work within us. That we would have sure confidence of hope and life. That he is shaping even our affections. This is written not with ink, 
This is written with the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. It's a big deal to etch something into a tablet of stone. It is at least in somewhat, some way permanent. And of course, he's going to make the full reference to this later on. But the fact of the matter is, if you etch something in stone, somebody has to come to where the stone is in order to read it. But when it is inscribed by the Spirit of God on human hearts, what happens when we scatter? What happens when we go all over the place? That letter goes with us. Written by the Spirit of God, written on human hearts, where the Spirit of God takes the message of the gospel, the truth of Christ, and etches it into our hearts and in our lives. And as we use the word hearts here, Biblically speaking, we're not simply talking about the seat of our emotions. We're talking about the seat of all the ways in which we could think of our affections in terms of our mind and our understanding, our emotions in the way that we process that, and our will in the way in which we make decisions. That the Spirit of God is written on human hearts. The wonder of His life-giving power. That we bear the message of redeeming love. That our lives bear the message of the power of grace to rescue us from death and hell and give us living hope. Who are you trusting in? Who is your confidence? Who is it that you are confident in will write your story and write it well? There are so many prognosticators who are out there telling us that we need to take our own hand in this and make it happen on our own, write our own story and do all these things. Who is it that we're ultimately comforted in? And whom do we trust? Who's the better writer, we may say? Who's the better guide? Who is all wise? With today's events and tomorrow's plans, are we confident in being a living recommendation of the gospel? And that even as we read this and as we think about our own lives and as we think about the ways in which we pray for our children or pray for our grandchildren or pray for our neighbors or pray for our friends and we think about all the ways in which our lives are meant to recommend the gospel and as soon as we say that, we think of all the ways in our own lives where we could just go down the list. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I'm not sufficient in and of myself to accomplish this in any way, shape, or form. Exactly. That's the That's exactly where God, by His Word, leads us. We are not sufficient to do it in ourselves. He says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. He who saves is He who sustains. He who calls is He who equips. We cannot do this on our own. That as we think of going out to our neighbors and sharing Christ with them and standing on their doorsteps and knowing that every single person that you see anywhere is going to live in eternity somewhere. And so on the one hand, you're trying to you know, overcome the gaps of conversation and sort of make these sort of friendly inroads of wanting to be winsome with the gospel and everything else. And yet at the same time, praying your heart out, Lord, I'm not sufficient to make this happen. 
I can't do this. I can't turn the heart of my wayward child. I can't turn the heart of that neighbor of mine where it just feels like I'm pounding my head against the brick wall. I can't do all of this. Our confidence must be in Him and His sufficiency. Our confidence through Christ toward God. You see what He's doing here? He's like, before you go on about unpacking all of the wonders and thinking about all the ways in which your life is a living recommendation of the gospel, go back to the gospel. What is the confidence that you have as you approach God the Father? It is Jesus Christ the Son. Our only confidence before the Father is Jesus. Not ourselves. We are sinful. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have a sin nature. Our own ideas are soiled and soured with our own sinfulness. All of our good works are nothing as filthy rags before the Father. And so our only confidence coming before Him is what? Is who? Is Jesus. It's Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But if you come through me, you come. Right? He's the way. He's the only way. So we trust Him, that He is sufficient. He has done it. He has accomplished it. He's the only one who could have, who could have died on the cross for our sin, only because He is fully God and fully man. Fully man in the sense that He could substitute Himself for us. Fully God in the sense that He could endure the full outpouring of the wrath of God against our sin. Still be alive, lay down His life, say, it is finished, and three days later take it back up again. Only he could have done this. We couldn't have done it. Only he could be our advocate before the Father even right now. Our confidence of his care. That God has demonstrated his own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he has kept his promises, even the promise of Christ, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And you can think, well, how in the world did he do that? And he sent his own spirit. Confidence in his own sanctifying work by his spirit in our own lives because this is his will for us. This is his purpose. And so he says such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. That this affects real life. How we make decisions. How we make value decisions. How we have confidence to live in any way, shape, or form in our own lives. Confident that God is at work. Because God is sufficient. You see where this leads though. Because in order to come to this position, we have to be humbled. Trust in Him. To admit our own insufficiency and trust in His sufficiency. So it leads us to a place where we cannot be cocky. But it also leads us to a place where we cannot be cowards either. Christ is our confidence. Be confident in the sufficiency of God. He says not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency, as he says it, is from God. We're not adequate in our own strength. 
It's okay to say, I can't, even though we all hate to say that. And we can see here, even, even here, the broader sweep of the bigger picture of the entire book of 2 Corinthians, of his power at work in our weakness. To turn our hearts, to convict us of our sin. Paul's looking at the Corinthian church and saying, I can't take credit for any of this. We ought to look at one another. In the, even in the moments where you lead somebody to faith in Christ, you, can, you, you ought to say, I can't take credit for this. This is the gospel. This is our God did this. We, take, we can't take credit for the gospel. We can't take credit for new life. We take, can't take credit for the advance of the gospel. Even as the Apostle Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, Paul planted and Apollos watered, who gave the growth? God did. We have not provided what we have all enjoyed. That's true of life in general, isn't it? We take an average of something like 20,000 breaths a day. Did we provide any of those for ourselves? Our heart beats something like 100,000 times a day on average. Did you do that? You make that happen somehow? Did you start that up somewhere? We can testify to all these ways. I mean, you think of your own intellect. Maybe you think a lot of your own intellect. I don't know. Who gave it to you? What about your skills? Who gave you those? What about your abilities? Who gave you that? What about your winsome personality? Who gave you that? What about all the ways in which you have all these connections? Who provided for all of these things? If we are honest and we can look around, what is it that we enjoy that we have not been given? But if we can admit that of our own lives physically, how much more so ought we in the spiritual reality of our own salvation, of our own hope, of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of our sin and the help that He always provides, our sufficiency is from God. God alone is our confidence. When we need light to pierce the darkness, God is our confidence. We need love displayed and eyes opened. Our God is our confidence. In all those moments when we are reminded and overwhelmed by our own insufficiency, remember what God has written into your own life. This ought to help us grapple with the events of the days. Because so many of our hallway conversations seem to have turned to, what about World War III? What about hurricanes in Acapulco? What about earthquakes in Morocco and Afghanistan? What about floods in Egypt? What about all these things that are going on around us? What of what, what what all these things that we have no control over? What of all these things that I just heard in the doctor's office that I have no control over? What of all these things as I just hang up the phone with that loved one of mine and it's just like, I got nothing. Oh, we've got something. Our God is sufficient. As everything around us may feel like things are crumbling and looming clouds may be on the horizon, our God is sufficient. 
Our sufficiency is from Him. That we are not living in fear and fret over everything. We are looking even with tears in our eyes to the God who is always sufficient. And that we find our confidence to face today and tomorrow and whatever days He has left for us in Him and Him alone. Because it's not just that He is sufficient, but He makes application of His sufficiency in verse 6. Who has made us sufficient. Out of His sufficiency, He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. He has qualified. He has equipped us. He has done this. There are a lot of overwhelming circumstances in life. But our God is sufficient. We may complain about supply issues everywhere else, but we need not ever think there are supply issues with our God. Maybe you've had a circumstance in your work life where somebody has told you you had to do something, given you no training and just a bunch of demands. Say, go figure it out. And you have felt the overwhelming horror of that moment. Feel like you have been set up to fail and you're frustrated about it. We need not think that our God has been like that with us in the church. He is sufficient. He has equipped us to reach our own community. Now, we may not feel sufficient in ourselves, but we're not. But our God is. He has equipped us to be lights in the darkness in our own homes. We may not feel entirely sufficient for that. We're not, but He is. He equips us with Himself that we would be ministers of a new covenant as He describes it here. Those who are waiting the table, those who are bringing to the table the new covenant, where you can, you can read all about this in Jeremiah chapter 31, right? You could read in verse 33, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What do we bring to the table for our own society? We bring the new covenant. The wonder of the forgiveness of sins that our God saves and transforms and redeems and reconciles that out of the midst of the sinful realities of life, our God is full of grace and truth. Our confidence is in Him. Ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, as he's using the letter here, he's making reference to the engraving, the written law. Now, we need to be careful how we read this because this is not to say that we avoid the law. We just don't expect the law to give life. It's not to say that we carve it out. But so much of the false teaching of the first century was just setting up new rules for people to to live by. And really to say, hey, you've got to embrace all of the ritual law of the Old Testament in order to really be a Christian. Of course, the Apostle Paul goes way out of his way to say, no, no. But isn't it interesting that people still do that very same thing? It may not be with the Old Testament ritual law, maybe with any number of other things. We really have to do this. No, our God is sufficient. He is enough. It's not of the law, it's of the Spirit. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit changes our affections. 
All of a sudden, our decisions are flowing from our affections that have been transformed by the love and the grace of God himself. Now, where we all, we just loved our deeds of darkness, by the light of his holiness and the goodness of his grace, he transforms our affections. We want the light. We want the truth. We want his grace and his mercy and his righteousness. He says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. How does the letter kill? It kills by the slow, for one, it kills by the slow death of hopelessness that it's never enough. From this moment on, you could do everything by the book and by the law. And it would still not be enough. You talk to somebody who lives in a worldview where their salvation is entirely dependent upon their law, and you know what the, you wind up with? An entire lack of assurance and no hope whatsoever. But even more than that, the law killed, the letter kills because the law shows us our sin. You could go read Romans 7 and find that. The law shows us our sin, it shows us and unveils the reality of our own hearts. Our own idolatry and lust, lies, covetousness. The law compels the need for the remedy. The law leads us to the right diagnosis, but it does not heal. It's the Spirit who gives life. Or to say it as the Apostle Paul will later in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Who are you trusting in today? We believers, we who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, are purveyors of life. What is it that we're offering to the world around us? What is it that we're recommending to the world around us? Who is it that we're recommending? The spirit of life, forgiveness, hope, joy, love in Christ. But in the final analysis, as we look at our own lives, as you analyze your own life here today, where is your confidence? Because we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper confidence in the cross of Christ, confidence in His sufficiency to die our death and save us from our sin. But before we come anywhere near the supper, make sure that you are trusting in Him. Make sure that all of your confidence is in Jesus Christ for salvation, that you believe and you know and you have surrendered to the God of all grace who in love sent His own Son who came in the flesh, who lived a real human life, who was tempted to sin in every way as we are and yet never did, who in perfect righteousness went to the cross and exchanged himself for us, who died on the cross for our sin, who endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against all who would repent and believe, who died our death, who declared it is finished, who was buried, who three days later rose from the grave. Is your confidence in Him today?
trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord. May all of us, as we direct our attention to the cross of Christ, to the wonder of what He's done, to the resurrection reality, to the fact that His Spirit gives us life, may all of us together today look and see that our confidence is in Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts. God, help us. Father, we pray for the people who are here today who have never known you, who have tried their best, and who have woefully fallen short, and they know it. Father, we pray for the people who may be here who who think that their own lives are sufficient in themselves. Father, may we together acknowledge none of us are sufficient to save ourselves. None of us are worthy to be in your presence whatsoever. None of us are worthy to be before you for all eternity. Yet, you are so good, so gracious, and so loving. That as we dwell in our deeds of darkness, loving our evil, Father, in your grace and in your love, you sent your Son to save us, to transform our lives. Father, we pray that the law would lead us to the right diagnosis of our need for Jesus and that your Spirit would give life here today. And Father, that we could celebrate the supper together simply with the bold declaration, our God is sufficient. Life has come. Lord, in our hearts, make the right application in us that we would look to Jesus and trust in him together as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.